One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 203, The Pechenegg Wars, again. In our last episode we ran swiftly through events in Anatolia between Alexius's accession in 1081 and the mid-1090s. Throughout that 15-year period, the emperor was occupied with European wars and unable to do anything proactive in Asia. Today we turn our attention to those European wars. We've already covered the conflict with the Normans, which ran from 1081 to Robert Giscard's death in 1085. Today we cover the next 10 years in the West, along with some of the reaction of those back in Constantinople to events on both sides of the Bosphorus. In 1086, Alexius enjoyed a rare summer at home. Not that he was able to relax much. He was busy wooing Abul Qasim, the Sultan at Nicaea, as we talked about last week. Reports then arrived in late summer that the Pechenegs had invaded Thrace. As you may recall, the Pechenegs were a confederation of steppe tribes who dominated the lands north of the Danube for the past couple of centuries. A large group of them had migrated into the empire back in the 1040s. A bloody stalemate followed between the tribes and the empire, leaving the nomads in charge of the lands between the Hemus Mountains and the Danube River. The Hemus Mountains, in case you've forgotten, are only 280 miles north of Constantinople. The two sides had maintained somewhat peaceful relations during the pre- and post-Manzikert chaos, but that was about to change. What triggered this latest wave of conflict was Alexius's treatment of the Paulicians. In episode 199, we covered the Roman defeat at the Battle of Dyrrhachium. With the Normans in hot pursuit, the Romans had fled back to Thessalonica. But some units didn't stop there. Some simply went home. One such group were the Paulicians, who lived near Philippopolis in Thrace. As I mentioned at the time, these Paulicians were the descendants of the dualist Christian sect who'd once lived in the Armenian mountains. They had been assaulted by Basil I and forcibly removed to the Balkans, and in their new home they'd maintained their community identity. 
This was fairly typical Roman policy. Little effort was made to convert subject peoples to orthodoxy so long as they paid their taxes. With the empire in desperate need of recruits, Alexius had ordered the Paulicians to supply him with a few thousand men. They had, but their poor performance at Dyrrhachium had done them no favours. As you know, Alexius spent the next three years desperately trying to cobble together an army to meet Bohemond in the field. The Paulicians stopped returning his calls. Given that they were imperial subjects, required by law to meet their obligations, this meant trouble. On his way home from successfully routing the Normans, Alexius paid a visit to Philippopolis. He ordered the Paulician leadership to come out and meet him, ostensibly to formally enroll them in the imperial army. But instead of handing out salaries and titles, the Vasilevs had their leaders arrested, baptised, and exiled. Predictably, the remaining Paulicians fled north to the Hemus Mountains. They then contacted the Pechenegs, who began raiding Roman territory. From the Pechenegh point of view, any peace with the Romans was temporary. They knew that the empire didn't want them loose on its land, and their recent freedom of action was only possible because the Byzantines were bogged down in Anatolia. Alexius's victory over the Normans and his rough treatment of the Paulicians indicated to them that they would be next on the imperial agenda. So rather than wait to be attacked, they got their shots in first. The key to the wars which followed was control of the Hemus Mountain passes. The Paulicians had headed for the hills after their run-in with Alexius, and they now held the door open, so to speak, for the nomads. The Pechenegs invaded in late summer, with Paulician guides showing them where all the cool stuff was kept. And it was too late for Alexius to fight in person, so he sent a trusted general, Tatikios, to do his best to drive them off. Tatikios, by the way, was a Turkish slave who'd been raised in Alexius's household, and therefore had the emperor's complete trust. The Pechenegs raided with impunity as Tatikios gathered an army at Adrianople. Eventually, the Pechenegs divided their forces in two, and the Romans were able to ambush one group as they made their way home, laden with booty. But the rest escaped unharmed, and it was clear that this was not the end of the matter. In spring 1087, the Pechenegs raided again into Thrace. Roman officers met them on the road to Constantinople and drove them off, but these attacks were politically damaging to Alexius. They struck the estates of the wealthy elites at the capital, and they came so soon on the heels of the Norman wars that they seemed to cancel out much of the prestige the emperor had gained. Perhaps it was that political pressure that determined Alexius's next decision. The Vasilevs made plans to march all the way to the Danube and put an end to the Pechenegh menace once and for all. By midsummer, Alexius was at Adrianople, which had become the main recruiting ground for the imperial armies. He spent 40 days there, gathering the infantry he'd need to support his largely mercenary cavalry divisions. 
Anna gives us a fabulous scene inside the city. George Paleologos and the sons of Romanos Dioyenis are there, and amongst many other officers, and they're all fully on board with Alexius's aggressive strategy. The only naysayer is Nicephorus Vurienios, who predicts that the campaign will end in disaster. Vurienios was the man Alexius defeated, shortly after Votaniates had seized power. This was the last action of our previous narrative century. It was when Alexius brought Turkish mercenaries to Europe for the first time, and they promptly won him the battle. In the aftermath, as you would expect, Alexius had Vurienios's eyes put out. We might not have heard any more from Vurienios, but he was from the wealthiest family in Adrianople, and since that city had become the front line in Roman recruitment, the general was sent home rather than exiled. Alexius paid particular attention to Vurienios's honour, including him in his war councils, and eventually marrying his eldest daughter to Vurienios's grandson. It is this latter connection that leads Anna to report the following anecdote. Vurienios, having listened in silence to Alexius's plans to make for the Danube, commented, Sir, if you cross the Hemus, you will appreciate the fastest horses. And when someone asked him to elaborate, he added, For the flight. Meaning, for when you are fleeing homewards. Personally, I didn't even need Vurianios's witty hindsight to see disaster looming for Alexius. I try to keep my instant personal opinions out of the narrative, but on this occasion I felt it was impossible. Given the lessons he'd learnt during the Norman Wars, I was very surprised to discover that Alexius planned on taking on the Pechenegs directly. All his success so far had been through manoeuvre and ambush. And more than that... The whole weight of Byzantine history would tell you that marching to the Danube was a bad idea. The centuries of war with the Bulgars had taught the Romans not to campaign for any length of time north of the Hemus. The land there just couldn't sustain imperial armies for long, and crossing mountain passes left the Byzantines very vulnerable. Not to mention the fact that the Pechenegs had dealt the Romans a series of very nasty defeats, just 40 years earlier. The only successful campaign that comes to mind was John Zimiskis's attack on the Rus at Dristra. But Zimiskis led the most powerful Byzantine army in centuries, and even then, it was a close-run thing. Ignoring the warnings of history, and defeated enemies alike, Alexius led his army across the Hemus Mountains in midsummer. The imperial fleet sailed for the mouth of the Danube at the same time. Their target was actually the city of Dristra. The goal was to capture the key trading town and install a Roman garrison. Presumably, the combined land and sea assault would restore imperial control to most of the Danube trading towns. Then Alexius could cut the Pechenegs off from the goods they needed to survive and force them to the bargaining table. If that was the plan, then Alexius wasn't satisfied when envoys from the step riders reached him on the road north. 
The sight of a full imperial army emerging from the mountains had intimidated them, and they were ready to talk about a new treaty. But Alexius had no intention of turning around and had the envoys arrested. This sign of bad faith was immediately punished. The Pechenegs stalked the Romans and began attacking their foraging parties, even making an assault on the army camp itself as it passed Pliska. But Alexius pressed on, and to his credit he surprised the defenders of Dristra, who were quickly overwhelmed. But despite occupying most of the town, Dristra had two citadels, whose garrisons held out. The Romans were now in danger of being trapped between the Pachineg army outside and those within. With food slowly running out, and the phrase, I told you so, ringing in his ears, Alexius decided to break out and make for another fortress instead. But as the army crossed the countryside, it became clear that the whole campaign was in desperate danger. The Pechenegs were hot on their heels. If the next siege failed, the army would be out of food and have to retreat back to Thrace. Such a journey would be so predictable that the Pechenegs and their allies would have every mountain path blocked, ready to trap and slaughter the Romans. The emperor decided, therefore, that the only sane course of action was to meet the Pechenegs head-on. Only by defeating them in battle would the path home be clear. When your best option turns out to be fighting a pitched battle with a steppe army on their turf, you can be sure that someone did not think this campaign through. Alexius led his army out in its traditional formation. The emperor at the centre, two wings either side, commanded by Melisinos and Alexius's brother Adrianos. The Vasilevs gave the order for the infantry and cavalry not to leave each other's side until they had closed in on the nomads. Needless to say, the key to victory was to force the Pechenegs to fight hand to hand. Only then could the superior armour and training of the imperial forces be brought to bear. The Pechenegs fought with their wagons in a circle behind them, guarding their camp. The fighting was fierce and the casualties were high. In the end, another group of Pechenegs appeared on the horizon and the imperial army fled. Leo Theogenes, son of Romanos, was killed in the fighting, and Alexius was struck in the buttocks by a spear, a nasty and humiliating blow. In his haste to get away, the emperor had to abandon the Shroud of the Virgin Mary, which he'd brought to the Danube to inspire the army. The relic was hidden in some bushes as the imperial bodyguard spirited Alexius away. As always happens in these situations, the Byzantines split up into smaller units, all fleeing south in different directions, suffering further casualties as they went. George Paleologos was lost for 11 days in the mountains before finding aid. The fact that we know so much about George, by the way, suggests that he was one of Anna's sources. Some historians point to the similarities between this battle and the Battle of Adrianople, and wonder if Anna was making an allusion to that famous defeat. But as I read the description of the action, it reminded me of nothing so much as the Battle of Manzikert. 
The Romans advance, the nomads retreat, their reinforcements arrive, and the Romans rout. It just wasn't a good idea to take on steppe archers directly, unless you possessed overwhelmingly superior forces. The scale of this disaster could well have ended Alexius's reign then and there, and certainly this was the moment when serious whispers began. But something that softened the blow was the news that the victorious Pechenegs had been splattered themselves shortly after the battle. When the Romans had initially crossed the mountains, Pechenegg ambassadors had gone to the Danube and asked for help from the tribes who'd occupied their old stomping grounds. The tribes who responded are known to us as the Cumans. Arriving at the battlefield a few days late, the Cumans asked for their share of the Roman booty. After all, we've come all this way, we're not going home empty-handed. Understandably, most of the Pechenegs felt that those who'd risked their lives should enjoy all the rewards. The Cumans pressed the matter, and the Pechenegs were quickly fleeing in the opposite direction, wondering if perhaps they should have honoured their deal after all. In traditional Roman fashion, imperial diplomats now began making inquiries about the Cumans, and what it might cost to turn them permanently on their pastoral brethren. Over the course of the next three years, Alexius would spend most of his time at Adrianople fighting guerrilla-style with the Pechenegs. Anna describes more Odysseus-like ruses, including the time Alexius had wagons suspended from the battlements of a town and then dropped them on the Pechenegs as they rode past, causing chaos. Alexius was wise to resort to hit-and-run tactics, but it was also a necessity since he was spending this time hunting again for new recruits to rebuild his battered army. As usual, western knights and Turkish mercenaries were to be his striking arms, while Balkan peasants would be his infantry. He also began to train a new cavalry division of native Romans recruited from the sons of dead soldiers. This new unit, the Arcantopuli, were swiftly defeated in their first engagement with the Pechenegs. When Alexius did return home, the mood was sombre. The news in east and west was bleak. The Patriarch of Antioch, unable to even reach his city, gave an alarming sermon in front of the Emperor in 1091. In it he said all was lost. God had stopped protecting the Romans. Only repentance could save them. The most worrying development, though, was one I hinted at last week. Chaka, the emir of Smyrna, had made contact with the Pechenegs. He tried to persuade them to capture Byzantine towns on the Hellespont. If they succeeded, it could see the Romans blocked from accessing the Aegean. This plan came to a head in the summer of 1091, as the Pechenegs raided in that direction and Alexius gathered a full imperial army to occupy the area around the coast. At the same time, the Cumans, who'd been threatening to return, crossed the Danube and headed south. Alexius sent officials to race to the Cuman camp and offer them anything they wanted to join the imperial side. He knew that if they renewed their alliance with the Pechenegs, he would be finished. The Cumans were offered all the booty and all the slaves from any battle they took part in, and they agreed to join the emperor. 
Alexius remained rightly suspicious of his new allies, though. As soon as they reached him, he marched to meet the Pechenegs at nearby Lavunium, not wanting to give the Cumans any time to make contact with their fellow nomads. And when battle was joined, he sent imperial standard-bearers to fight alongside the Cumans to try and prevent them from switching sides. His caution paid off. The Cumans took up their position on the Roman right and easily pushed the Pechenegs back. Unaccustomed to being hit with enemy arrows, the Pechenegs were thrown out of kilter and failed to prevent the Romans from closing in on them. The imperial left wing, stocked with Latin knights, also flanked the Pechenegs, who were now trapped between their wagons and the advancing imperial troops. Now this was an overwhelmingly superior force, and what followed was a slaughter. Alexius was ruthless in pressing his victory. He ordered servants to bring wineskins full of water to his troops so that they wouldn't run out of energy as they mauled the Pechenegs into the dirt. As ever, we don't have reliable numbers for any of these battles, but if the Pechenegs had put 15 or even 20,000 men into the field, they never would again. The date of the battle was the 29th of April, 1091, prompting a popular Byzantine saying that loses little in the translation, all because of one day, the Scythes never saw the month of May. Scythians being the name that steppe tribes were given in Herodotus's day. I mean, come on, I can't keep up with what they're calling themselves now. The Pechenegs were not wiped out to a man. Some did escape the battlefield, while others were captured and settled near Thessalonica as imperial subjects. They would go on to serve in Alexius's army, so there must have been a few thousand fighting men left, but no more, since after that point they never caused him any further trouble. The Romans now took back control of the Danube trading towns, which was both politically and economically valuable. Technically, then, the Roman border was now back on the Danube River itself, but as subsequent events would show, the real defensive border in the north remained the Hemus Mountains. As Antony Cordellis points out, Alexius had finally dealt with the Normans and Pechenegs, who had appeared on the imperial scene 40 years earlier. All it had taken was the sacrifice of Italy and Anatolia to achieve. And that's kind of the point about the Roman Empire. Having a fully professional, centralised army made the Romans slow to respond to challenges and poor at fighting on multiple fronts at once. Given time and space, though, they would usually win the war. Surely now was the time to turn collective attentions back to Anatolia and begin making plans to deal with the Turks. Well, yes and no. The next spring, 1092, the emperor did take action against the Turks, but not on land. This was the moment when he put the fleet under the command of John Ducas and sent him against Chaka, as we talked about last episode. This restored some confidence, but Alexius did not campaign in person that year. 
Okay, so 1093 then. Well, in 1093, Alexius was on campaign, but again in the Balkans. A Serbian warlord named Vukan had been raiding the territory of Dyrrhachium, and the emperor clearly felt that he couldn't campaign in Anatolia if there was any sort of trouble in the Balkans. En route, he discovered that his nephew, John Komnenos, the governor of Dyrrhachium, had been chatting about becoming emperor one day. The matter was sorted out in-house, but it was a warning. If members of Alexius's own family were discussing his replacement, then perhaps he should be on guard. The Serbs begged for peace as soon as Alexius was within sight, but once the Romans had gone home, Vukan renewed his attacks. This is where things get interesting. In spring 1094, Alexius announced that he would be marching back to Dyrrhachium. He could not stand for this aggression from Vukan, who must be pacified. Modern historians detect raised eyebrows from amongst the Byzantine elite at this decision. The Serbs were surely a minor nuisance that provincial governors could handle, whereas Anatolia was in desperate straits. Alexius seemed to be doing little to restore their former farms and mansion houses to them. I'm being slightly cynical with that last remark. Certainly the news from Anatolia was dire at that point. And as we'll discuss next week, there were actually plenty of reasons for the elites to want to get rid of Alexius. You already know some of them, including his confiscations of church property and the increased activity of his tax collectors, which was making him unpopular in all sorts of circles. Whatever the exact motives of the conspirators, a plot to murder Alexius on the road to Dyrrhachium was hatched. The man who was to wield the knife was also the likely candidate to replace him, Nicephorus Theogenes. Nicephorus was the youngest son of the late Romanos Theogenes, who, despite his defeat at Manzikert, was much admired. Nicephorus had inherited his father's looks and physique, and carried around the dangerous title of Porphyrogenitos, having been born in the palace's famous purple room while his father was emperor. Theogenes was now in his early twenties, and had been raised alongside other prominent members of the Komnenos clan. Despite this, he accepted the challenge of unseating the now 37-year-old Alexius. Nicephorus tried to catch the emperor when his guard was down, but was spotted with a concealed weapon and arrested. When he refused to talk, he was tortured. What Theogenes confessed seriously shocked Alexius. Implicated in the conspiracy were the former empress Maria, who had been crucial in Alexius's rise to power, Michael Taranites, who was married to Alexius's sister, and worst of all, his own brother, Adrianos, amongst many others. Now why, you might well ask, would Alexius's brother want to overthrow him only for Theogenes to become emperor? I think we can really see here the dynamics we talked about in episode 200. A coalition had formed against the emperor. Powerful interests were working for his removal, and Adrianos was married to Theogenes's sister. Adrianos saw which way the wind was blowing and decided to 
be on the right side of history. If he supported Theo Yenis now, he could maintain his own privileges and claim to his family that he'd saved them from Alexius's disgrace. The context for this is that the Byzantine elite really could be a forgiving bunch. Alexius not only looked after Theogenes's children, but had continued to protect Constantine Ducas, the son of Michael VII, who still carried the title of emperor. And as we discussed earlier, the blind rebel Virianios was also alive and kicking. So Adrianos put brotherly affection aside in order to be in with the in-crowd. Except, of course, that on this occasion he was wrong, and that spirit of forgiveness would not survive this conspiracy. As we'll discuss next week, Alexius was genuinely shocked by all this, and he would purge his administration of anyone he couldn't trust, removing whole families from prominence who had been in place since the days of Basil II. The next day, Alexius made a speech to the assembled nobles who were on campaign with him, pointing out his kindness to Theogenes over the years. And with rumours swirling that the imperial bodyguard were about to start executing those under suspicion, great cheers went up when Alexius announced he planned to exercise mercy. Theogenes and a co-conspirator were blinded and exiled, while others would only be removed from their exalted positions at a later date. For now, though, the army pressed on to the Zygos Mountains. This time, Vukan did not mess around. He bowed before the Vasilevs, handed over hostages, and put a stop to his raids. Still, though, the Balkans would not be peaceful. On his way home, messengers told Alexius that the Cumans had crossed the Danube again and were on the march. The nomads had with them their own Roman emperor, who claimed to be Leo Theogenes, another son of Romanus's, who had been lost in the earlier battle with the Pechenegs. This pretender was welcomed by those guarding the Hemus Mountains, and the Cumans were able to cross over in early 1095. Taking a deep breath, Alexius marched for Anchialus on the coast, daring the pretender to take him on directly. Finally, Alexius had got his tactics just right. The Cumans probably would have been content to raid the countryside, but the fake Theogenes couldn't march around enslaving his supposed subjects. But when he arrived at Anchialus, he realised he couldn't use his nomads to outflank the imperial army. Alexius had picked his spot carefully. The emperor lined up his forces just outside the city gates. So on one side was the sea, and on the other some rough ground which couldn't support cavalry. After a stare-down, the Cumans backed away. Theogenes marched them west to Adrianople. Perhaps if they could convince someone to open the gates, they could seize the city. Anna again steps in with a nice story of how the blind Virianios came to the walls, listened, and then shouted back, I can tell by your voice that you are no Theogenes. Getting desperate now, the Cumans began to split up to forage for supplies. Alexius stalked them until he could isolate a group of about 10,000. His Turkish mercenaries drove them towards a road, 
where his Norman mercenaries broke them with a charge. It may have taken fifteen years, but finally the Imperial army was beginning to master its enemies. A fake Theogenes, meanwhile, was welcomed into a nearby city by Imperial agents, who promptly arrested him. Finally, then, Alexius could return home with the secure, peaceful Balkans behind him. It was the summer of 1095, and it was time to contemplate a campaign in Anatolia. It was clear to Alexius, though, that despite the improved performance of his army, he did not have enough men to besiege Nicaea. That army would need to be vast enough to both blockade the city and fight off any Turkish reinforcements who came to harass them. For that campaign, he would need some serious assistance. Before we get to the Crusades, though, we need to do a little groundwork. Next time, we'll talk more about domestic matters. It's now been 15 years of Komnenian rule, and we need to talk about tax, administration, the church, etc. We need to talk about the failed coup and its consequences, and perhaps a little bit about Alexius's personality. Then I have a couple of interviews in the works to help bring us up to speed on the developments in Western Europe that laid the groundwork for the Crusades. Then, at last, the fun can really begin. <laughs> <laughs>